Revelation 19. Hope you've been enjoying the Revelation study. We've gotten some feedback from it from many of you. And the book of Revelation is a fascinating book. The book opens by telling us which, which things are uh, and shall be to come. Was, art and shall be to come. And so um, we're studying the things that are to come out of the book of Revelation. We know, according to Ephesians 6, that we are in a spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual war going on around us between the forces of righteousness and the forces of evil. And Satan is working hard to ruin homes and to ruin our country and ruin our culture. And, uh, and the uh, war uh, will continue to rage. And today we're going to see the end of that war. We're going to see where God wins the battle. And so Revelation 19, let's stand and we'll read verses 19, 20 and 21. We'll begin together in verse 19. I'll read verse 20 alone and then we'll read together verse 21. So together 19 and 21 and then I'll read alone verse 20. Let's begin reading together in verse 19. The Bible says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet and wrought miracles before him. Which, uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These, bo- these both were cast alive into, the, into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. I ask a question for the title this morning. Here's the title and the question. Are you on... The winning side. Are you on the winning side? Let's pray. God, as we open your word and we look at uh, the Bible and uh, the truths in the Bible, uh, Lord, help us to understand what we read and challenge us with it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we fight the good fight of faith. Lord, uh, sometimes we can question whether or not you're fair based on injustices that have happened in our lives. But help us to remember, Lord, that. You will eventually avenge wrong. You will punish wrongdoers. And Lord, as long as we trust you, we live our lives according to your word. And God, in time, your way is perfect. So Lord, affirm that truth in our heart today and many other truths as we dive in and understand this portion of the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, just to quickly recap uh, where we've covered and where we are uh, uh, now in the in the book. Let me just say that if this is your first time uh, hearing anything out of the book of Revelation, you're in for um, yeah, you're in for a surprise. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of the sermons in the series to give you some context to the message today. They are available on our church website, or they can be ordered through our bookstore. They're also available on Apple iTunes, through the iTunes Store, or the Google Play Store. So uh, just that shameless plug there for our, our church sermons, uh, church services. You can also find them on YouTube if you want to watch them in video format. But Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. Let's go over the timeline and uh, throw that first slide up there for me. Um, again, this is review, but uh, we are living in the church age. That is the time between the 69th week of Daniel, or the 483rd year of his prophecy, 
and the 70th week, which is yet to take place, the last seven year of prophecy. We're living in the church age, and the church age began with the ascension of Christ uh, there uh, with 500 witnesses, and it will end with the ascension of the church at the rapture. Throw the next slide up there for me. Uh, the next slide there is the rapture. That uh, is a catching away of Christians. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you have believed in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to give you a home in heaven, and you're putting your faith in uh, him and him alone, then you will be raptured or carried away out of here. A trump will sound, First Thessalonians tells us, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those of us which are alive and remain shall be called up together to meet the Lord in the air. First Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, and at that point, God is going to judge us for our works. He's going to wash us uh, with the water of his word and prepare us for an event that will take place that we'll talk about in our sermon later on. Next slide, please. Uh, at the end of this tribulation time on earth is the second coming of Christ. We'll be covering this today at the Battle of Armageddon. This is where Jesus Christ comes down on his horse and we follow him on horses and he fights uh, on our behalf and destroys the wicked armies of the world that hate him and that have sold their souls to the devil. This is also when Christ's millennial reign a uh, thousand-year reign will begin on planet Earth. All right, throw the next one up there for me. Next slide. The midway point of the tribulation, or the half, the, let's see, half a week or half of a group of seven years, three and a half years, is marked by what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. We talked about this last week. The temple that will be built in Jerusalem will become desolate by the Jews, desolated by the Jews, because of the abominable act performed by uh, the Antichrist as he sits on a seat in the temple and an image of him is constructed and set up there in the temple and he declares himself to be both God and political ruler of the world. The um, uh, ten kings of the earth, the other nine, will appoint him as the ruler of the entire world. And this is, uh, this is that midway point. All right, next slide. Uh, the first seal judgment is open, the seven seals that seal up the back of the uh, title deed that Jesus takes from God in heaven, sealed with seven wax seals. He begins to break them open, and as he breaks them open, warning judgments begin to hit the earth. The first seal judgment is the release of the Antichrist as he signs a peace treaty, a false peace treaty, between Israel and the Islamic world. And uh, the temple is allowed to be rebuilt where currently the Dome of the Rock sits, uh, which is the uh, holy land of the Is uh, Muslims, where they believe Muhammad ascended uh, up into the heavens. But that will be t- taken down, and a temple will be built. And uh, the seventh seal judgment, you see it there. Uh, next slide. Uh, that also marks the beginning of Daniel's prophetic 70th week, or last set of seven years, which will conclude with the coming back of uh, Jesus at that battle of Armageddon. Next slide. You get the seven... Uh, trumpet judgments. I'm trying to read this off the back screen. My vision's really being tested. Uh, the seven trumpet judgments. Uh, God will hand seven angels trumpets, and as they blow each trumpet, another judgment will hit the earth. I'd refer you back to last week's sermon where we covered all of those. Uh, next slide, we find the two witnesses uh, that have prophesied for close to three and a half years 
who are witnesses from heaven, prophesying against the earthly kingdom, the inhabitants of the earth, those that worship planet earth. He's preaching against them. They are shot dead in the street by the Antichrist or killed in the street by the Antichrist. And they're, le- they're left to lay there. After three and a half days, uh, the spirit of life comes in them. They resurrect and they ascend to heaven. Next slide. We find the mark of the beast begins. Uh, the false prophet convinces everyone to take the mark of the Antichrist in either their right hand or their forehead. And that uh, is signified by the numbers 666. The Bible tells us that you will not be able to buy or sell without that mark. And so uh, uh, I have speculated that most likely will be a chip of some sorts that has a GPS tracker in it, uh, medical data. Um, uh, obviously, payment uh, will live in a cashless society at that point, but payment uh, info will be there. But the mark of the beast will begin there. And those that take that mark are selling their souls to the devil. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that those that take that mark are representing themselves or lining themselves up with Satan and his kingdom and will at that point never be allowed to be saved. That brings us to the next slide, which is the seven vile or bowl judgments. The word vile would be a 1600s English word for bowl. But the seven vile or bowl judgments where the wrath of God is fiercely poured out on the planet And uh, between the sixth and seventh judgment, we find that battle of Armageddon and that seventh judgment uh, we'll look at uh, here in a moment. So uh, if you're wondering where we're going to be at on this timeline, we have marched through uh, the first uh, 13 chapters. We'll be in chapters 14 through uh, 19 in the beginning of 20. I expedited the service this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover and I want to get you out of here at a decent time. So let's uh, jump in this morning and look at four main thoughts from the book. And let me just encourage you uh, quickly that as we've studied this book, we've seen a great spiritual war between the forces of right and wrong, good and evil, God and Satan. Today we will see who the winner is going to be. The question to you is simple. Are you on the winning team? Are you living like you're on the winning team? Are you anticipating God winning this battle? Is that in the forefront of your mind as you go throughout the week, as you go about your life events, as you uh, raise a family or uh, you love your grandchildren or uh, you uh, live the lot in life that God has given you uh, uh, to accomplish, whether it's taking care of a sick loved one or uh, serving at church? Are you living with this thought in the forefront of your mind that God has placed you on the winning team and it is our job to do our part to see that win happen? Uh, let's jump in and look at four main thoughts this morning. Number one, notice. The voices, the voices, chapters uh, uh, 14 through 16, we find the word voice uh, 11 times in three short chapters. And we find the voices of several different people, but they're all broadcasting basically the same thing. And here's what they're broadcasting. Jesus has had enough. Sinners will face great wrath for their sin. The the forces of evil will soon see their end. Jesus is getting ready to win the war against Satan and evil. The event that has just taken place prior to chapter 14 is that the Antichrist has declared himself the ruler of the world. And at that moment, the, uh, the, the angels and the saints of heaven begin to look down with great anticipation of what is to come. It is almost like... Uh, uh, it is almost like the 
celebration or a song service prior to some uh, great event or uh, the parties that take place days out before a wedding or graduation or some great event in your life where the anticipation is great. I remember when I got married, uh, the weeks leading up to it, there was a lot going on and a lot of celebratory spirit and a, a, a feeling of excitement. And in heaven, once the Antichrist sits on uh, the throne in the temple and the image of him is set up and he declares himself the rulers of the world, there is a jittery anticipation in heaven as people begin to prepare and the angels begin to prepare for Jesus to become uh, not only the ruler of, of the world from a spiritual sense, but the ruler of the world from a political sense. And so the voices that we'll look at in these chapters are all voicing the same thing, and that is that prepare the way Jesus is coming to be king of the earth. Let's notice first uh, letter A. Notice the voices of the Hebrew martyrs, the voices of the Hebrew martyrs. Look at chapter 14 and verse number 1. Turn back with me to chapter 14 of Revelation in verse number 1. The Bible says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. These are the same hundred and forty four thousand that we find in chapter number six, uh, the twelve thousand of each tribe that are saved shortly after the rapture that go around and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the earth. All hundred and forty four thousand of them will be killed for their stand for Christ. Verse number two. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as uh, the, the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps and as they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand uh, who which were redeemed from the earth, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Uh, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Uh, these were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I'll just throw this out quickly. You're taking notes. You can jot this down and go read it later. But Psalm 2 has a double meaning to it. And part of Psalm 2's meaning is a description of this, these very events in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. But this Mount Sion, Mount Sion found in verse 1, I believe this to be a Mount Sion in heaven. While there is a Mount Zion on earth, which is known as the great city Jerusalem, this is the Mount Zion in heaven. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, look at verse number two. It says, and I heard a voice from heaven. And you go down to verse number three. It says, and they sung as it were a new song where before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, these things are in heaven. And so uh, throughout scripture, you find a heavenly Mount Zion. These 144,000 uh, preachers of the gospel, Jewish preachers of the gospel have been murdered for their faith and they stand with Jesus and they sing a song uh, in celebrate celebration of Jesus that only they are able to learn. No one else other than these 144,000 Hebrew uh, uh, men will be able to sing this song. And so we see them standing, we see them singing, and we see their separation uh, uh, from uh, the, the rest. And so the voices of the Hebrew martyrs, letter B, notice the voices of the angelic messengers. The voices of the angelic messengers. In the remainder of chapter 14, we find at least six angels 
who will speak with their voice. Six angels who will speak with their first, with their voice. I don't know that these will be on the screen. I can't remember what I emailed over to go on the screen, but let me give you what these angels say. Uh, first notice, judgment is come. Judgment is come. Yeah, these aren't going to be on the screen. You have to write these down. Judgment is come. Look at verse number six of the verse of, of Revelation 14. It says there, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give him uh, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So this angel will fly throughout the heaven, uh, the heavens, the skies, and will proclaim with a loud voice that you are to fear God because his judgment is coming. He proclaims the everlasting gospel. And you might ask, well, why doesn't that angel proclaim that message now? Can you imagine if an angel appeared in the sky and started preaching the gospel? And say, Pastor, that would be powerful. Why doesn't God do that if he really wants people to believe? And the truth is because God has not given that responsibility to the angels right now. You say, well, who's he giving it to? <laughs> He's giving it to us. It's your job and it's my job to tell others. One day it'll be the angels' jobs. They're being held back in heaven from doing that. Because God wants me and you to tell the world that Jesus saves. I want you to think about the last time something really good happened to you. Were you embarrassed to tell others about it? Let's say tomorrow morning you woke up and the publisher's clearinghouse van was outside your house. (laughs) Would you say, oh, I can't tell anybody about that because I'd be embarrassed. Hey, you just won $10,000 a day for life. You may not want to tell anyone. He's, you know, you wouldn't have any money, right? But imagine if you had a child who was sick with terminal cancer and miraculously they recovered. You think you'd, you'd tell others? Why don't we tell others that we've been cured from the terminal illness of sin through the saving grace of Jesus? Especially considering that they're dying of the same terminal illness and the healing balm of God's grace can heal them the way it healed you. Jesus didn't just die for you, Christian. He died for your friend and your neighbor and your loved ones. And and He even died for your enemies. He died for the best of society and He died for the scum of society. And say, well, I don't know what they're going to think of me. Well, good night if they were dying with cancer and you knew a doctor that could heal them. Would you really care what they thought about you if you told them? I know a God who can heal them from the terminal cancer of sin. That's rotting their soul and taking it to hell. One day it'll be the angel's job to tell the world. But right now it's our job. Christian, don't be ashamed of your faith. You may not know exactly how to do that, but you can hand someone... An invitation to church and say, why don't you come to church where the love of God is shared and the grace of God is given? Can you at least do that? Can you work on learning how to share with others the good news? 
we see this angel. He's proclaiming judgment is coming. The next angel proclaims Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. Look at verse 18 of Revelation, or rather verse 8 of Revelation 14. The Bible says, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen. It's fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, we'll see this word fornication and we'll see the word whore mentioned in chapter 17 in a few minutes. And the idea here is not uh, 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 fornication or whoredoms the way we think of maybe a woman of the night standing on the corner selling her body. But think about rather um, uh, spiritual adultery or spiritual uh, selling of one's self to accomplish uh, uh, something for political gain and cheating on the God who created that faith. Uh, you maybe have heard someone say that this politician's in bed with Wall Street, right? Uh, that analogy of being in bed with Wall Street or being in bed with business or being in bed with government. Think of uh, uh, it in those terms, but uh, that city, Babylon, my opinion And again, there are many people here that have studied this out that are going to disagree with this. And I'm going to say it's my opinion, and I do not stand firmly next to this. You maybe could even change my mind if you really know the topic. Okay? But my opinion is that this Babylon is the city of Rome. The city of Rome. I'll give you some reasons for that in a minute, all right? Why I think that. Uh, But we'll talk about Babylon falling more in just a moment. Next notice, escape God's wrath. The next angel is saying to the world, escape God's wrath. Look at Revelation 14 and verse number 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented uh, with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night, nor worship the beast in his image. Uh, and whatsoever receiveth the mark of his name. And to someone who's reading these verses saying, I thought God was a loving God. How can He be a loving God if He's tormenting people with fire and brimstone and He's pouring down upon them wrath? And the answer is simple. The first three and a half years of the uh, uh, of the tribulation, God poured out His judgments in the form of warnings to the world to repent, trying to get them to turn. And at this point, those that are suffering under the hand of the wrath of God are those that have obstinately looked at God and refused Him and have looked hard at the devil and his political leader, the Antichrist, and have chosen the Antichrist and chosen to, to, to uh, in essence, turn their back on God and thumb their nose at God. And God is saying, I have given you chance after chance after chance. Now that you have refused and rejected my love, I'm going to pour out my wrath hot and hard upon you. And so this angel is telling the world the judgment, the wrath of God is coming. Next notice, the next angel in the chapter says this. He says, reap. He's speaking to Jesus. Reap. The harvest is ripe. Reap. The harvest is ripe. Look down at verse number 14. It says, and I looked and beheld a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the son of man. This is Jesus having on his head a golden crown and his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple. This is the temple in heaven, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. 
For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. Uh, which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him uh, uh, that had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in the sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse's bridle by the space of thousand and six hundred furlongs and this um, uh, verse 20 is speaking here of uh, the the violence that will take place during this battle of the armies of uh, of the world against uh, the god of heaven or or uh, the god's son in heaven and so um, you may remember the parable of the wheat and the tares uh, found in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, the idea here is that there was a wheat field. And Jesus spoke of this. There was a wheat field. And uh, the um, uh, somebody, some thieves went into the field. Some uh, menacing men went into the field. And sowed tares amongst the wheat. And tares grow up and look just like wheat. And the disciples asked, or rather the, uh, the uh, uh, workers of the field asked, should we go and take the tares out? And, uh, and Jesus' instruction is found in Matthew 13.30. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barns. And so once this field is grown and the harvest is white under reaping, it is more apparent at that point which are tares and which are wheat. And uh, Jesus said, wait until the harvest is fully ripe and then gather the tares and punish them or burn them, and then I will gather the wheat unto myself. The other type of harvest we find here in Revelation 14 is a harvest of grapes. Now, uh, uh, pay attention closely here because there are three types of vines throughout the Scripture. All right, In the Old Testament, Israel was God's vine planted to bear fruit. In the Old Testament, we know that uh, they struggled with that, that that vine was poisoned regularly with idolatry and 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 sinful living. And so eventually God had that vine uprooted and had uh, the uh, ten tribes carried away by the Assyrians and the two southern tribes carried away by the Babylonians. And that vine was uprooted. Uh, So that's vine number one found in the Bible. Vine number two is uh, in the New Testament and Christ. Christ is the vine and Christians are the branches that bear fruit. I would refer you to John chapter 15 and you can find a description of the New Testament vine of Christ and us Christians being its branches that bear fruit. Now, there's a third type of vine that runs throughout the pages of the Bible and throughout history. And this vine is the world system. The world system is a vine and it is bearing uh, its vile fruit. It's sinful, disgusting, putrid, uh, uh, polluted, sinful fruit. And that fruit is being born and prepared for the judgment of the Lord. Where in Revelation 14, God will reap this uh, harvest of grapes and he will crush them and the river will flow like a, a river of blood. You say, well, when will that happen? That will happen when Jesus Christ comes down in that great war uh, in the valley of Megiddo right outside 
of the city of Jerusalem. So we see the voices, the voices uh, of, of the Hebrew martyrs. The, uh, we see letter B, the voices of the angelic messengers. Notice letter C, the voices of the song of Moses. Look at Revelation chapter 15. And I believe that we'll be a part of these voices to those of you that, uh, today that are here that are saved. It says, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. Take note of that, that these last plagues are full-blown, holy, hard-hitting the wrath of God. Now look at verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Take note of that sea of glass. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name uh, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of Saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Let me correct something I said just a moment ago. We will not be part of this choir. This will be those who were saved during the tribulation that were non-Jews that will have been killed for standing up to the Antichrist. They will have been killed. They'll be in heaven. Uh, we see uh, here that they overcame the mark uh, of the Antichrist by not taking their mark. They were killed for not uh, uh, participating in this. And they gather together next to a sea of glass in heaven and they sing the song of Moses. Now you ask, what is the song of Moses? The song of Moses is the song that was sung when the Israelites escaped Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. And the Red Sea collapsed on the Egyptian armies. And you remember, they stood next to the Red Sea and Moses' sister Miriam led them in a song. That is the song of Moses. You see that? They passed through the Red Sea and they sang next to the Red Sea. These saints will have passed through the blood of Jesus for salvation. They will have been killed for their stand for what's right. They will assemble next to a sea of glass in heaven. And they will sing the same song that the Israelites sang when they had been delivered from Egyptian captivity. But this song of Moses is not only sung, was not only sung by the tribulation saints and not only sung by uh, uh, those who had been delivered from Egyptian captivity. You find that in Exodus 15. But this song was also sung by the uh, Israelites that gathered uh, at the reconstruction of the second temple when it was dedicated. In fact, Psalm 118 verse 14, if you look closely, you find a portion of that song in that verse. And that verse is etched on our wall next to the ladies' bathroom in the hallway here on the first floor. But while the 144,000 sing a song that cannot be learned by others, this song will be sung by all of the tribulation martyrs in heaven. Now, back in chapter 14, verse 12, you find this phrase. Back in 14, verse 12, you find this phrase. The patience of the saints. You find that phrase twice in Revelation, but you find that concept All throughout the book. Now, if you don't get anything else from the sermon today to take home, take this home with you and live it. These saints will be persecuted, greatly persecuted for their stand for Christ. But not once do they shake their fist at God. Not once do they question God's timing in avenging 
their persecution. Instead, rather, they're patient. Now, what is it, Christian, that you are holding bitterly against God? Is there something that's happened in your life that you don't know how to let go? A wayward child. Maybe a child that's died. Maybe some person did you wrong and you want to know why God didn't step in and fix that. Now, I learned this quite a while back, quite a few years ago, when I was greatly wronged by a pastor. And I wanted God to pour down His wrath on that man for what He had done to me. What I have learned is that God's timing is not my timing. But God's timing is best. Now, these saints patiently waited for God to avenge them. And now they're gathered here in this chapter, next to this sea of glass in heaven. Why are they singing the song of Moses? Because they see that the vials are being prepared to pour out the wrath of God on those that had persecuted them and killed them. And they see that, that the judgment of God, the, uh, the vengeance of God, the vindication of their bloodshed is about to be given. And they begin to sing a song of praise as they have patiently waited. And some of you here today, you need to let go of your bitterness toward God. And you need to quit holding God hostage in your heart and shaking your fist at Him and saying, God, why have you allowed me to live such a hard life? Why have you allowed these hurtful things to me? God is going to allow those that have done you wrong to be punished in His time. And my friend, you need to let go of your right to punish and turn that over to God and allow Him to punish those that have so wronged you. It's a great day when we learn to let go and forgive those that have wronged us. You say, well, Pastor, what does it mean to forgive? It means to turn over my right to punish to God. It doesn't mean that you're freeing them from any punishment. It's turning that over to God. And these saints we find throughout Revelation cry out to God uh, multiple times and say, When, O Lord, when will you punish? And notice they're wanting to know the when, but there's no uh, motive or no no, uh, uh, bitterness or hatred in their voice because of the wait. And we see in Revelation 14.12 the patience of the saints. And Christian today, I would say to you that we need to learn to both be patient and to trust God that His way is best and His timing is best. Number one, we see the voices. Number two, notice the vials. The vials were the bowls. Look at Revelation chapter 15. Look at verse number 6. It says there, And the seven angels came out of the temple. This is the temple in heaven again. Having the seven plagues, clothed in purple and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels even golden vials or bowls, filled full or full of the wrath of God who lived forever and ever. Let's quickly look at these seven judgments. Before I give them to you, let me remind you that the 14 judgments we've looked up prior to this were warning shots across the vowel. Okay? Yes, some people died. Yes, people were tortured. I believe wholeheartedly that God chose the ones who He knew had no chance of repentance. Those who were the most scornful in their spirit and had them killed off first. 
The rest were warned. And I believe some were saved because of those warnings. But at this point, there are no more warnings. You see, at this point, all of humanity has either chosen the seal of God in their foreheads or the seal of Satan in their foreheads. Those that have chosen the seal of Satan or the Antichrist in their foreheads or their right hand, they will be wholeheartedly punished by God for flipping their nose at Him and rejecting His grace. Let's look at these seven judgments uh, uh, very quickly. We'll move through these quickly. First notice, great sores on mankind. Great sores on mankind. Look at Revelation 16, verse 2. And the first went, first angel went, and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And by the way, this sore is still found down in the fifth plague, uh, plaguing these people, these sores. Doctors can't figure out how to heal or get rid of, and they'll be in great pain and agony because of them. Um, you ever try to deal with a loved one in great pain and notice how cranky and grouchy they are? Can you imagine what this is going to do to human relations on the earth? The second uh, uh, bowl or vile judgment is salt water turned to blood. Salt water turned to blood. Look at verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. This is the wrath of God being poured upon the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul died in the sea. Now we saw earlier one of the judgments that a third of the salt water was turned to blood. But in this uh, uh, verse, all the rest of it will be turned to blood. Uh, the next, uh, the next judgment, fresh water turned to blood. Now we're going to get an explanation as to why God is doing this here, uh, in verses four through seven. It says, and the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be because thou hast judged thus for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, even so, Lord God almighty, true and righteous are thy judgment. And so so this uh, this blood is or this uh, the wrath of God is poured out both onto the salt water and the fresh waters and all the water sources of the world will be turned to blood because because those remaining that are following the Antichrist and his one world religion that are worshiping him and have taken his mark will have been guilty of murdering and shedding the blood of those who followed uh, the Lamb of God or Jesus. And so his punishment back to them is to give them blood for the blood that they've shed. The fifth one uh, here we notice is that men are scorched with the sun. Men are scorched with the sun. Look at chapter 16 and verse number 8. The Bible says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and and power was given uh, unto him uh, to, uh, to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. Now we know that God is the God of all the universe. He created it with, a, with his voice in six days. You say, oh, I can't believe that. How in the world could God create uh, everything from nothing in six literal days? There's no way you ever could expect me to be so naive as to believe that. And I would say, well, if you ascribe to evolution, you believe everything came from an explosion of a matter in space the size of the period at the end of a sentence. And the rest of it just happened by chance. And I would ask you this question. Which one requires more faith? 
Which one requires more faith? To believe that an explosion happened in space and that it rained for millions of years and then that rain cooled, the soup of the planet Earth cooled and two single-cell organisms at the same time began to develop and crawl out and become more complex and one happened to become male and the other one happened to become female and they happened to find each other on this vast planet and they happened to reproduce... I believe I came from God. You believe we came from a rock. Which one takes more faith? And I would say that God created the universe in six literal days. Psalm tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. No one looks at a painting of the Mona Lisa and says, I wonder where the bomb is that went off in the paint factory that produced this. So why do we believe that a bomb went off in space and created all of this beautiful, perfect order? The sun rises and sets Uh, by a 60-second difference every day. One degree closer to the sun, we'd burn up. One degree further away, uh, 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 one degree further away, we'd freeze. We've been perfectly placed in space where we are. The Bible says that God hung the worlds on nothing. And it's Him that oversees this, this perfect machine, this, 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 this work of clockwork that happens perfectly. Uh, uh, and, and so God created the earth, and so He can do whatever He wants with it. We saw that um, uh, we, we saw that in the fourth trumpet judgment that a third of the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. But here in this plague, we see that God turns up the light switch full blast, and He begins to use the sun to burn men. Now, uh, I went on a trip with my wife a couple of weeks back, and uh, I, I am a white boy, and I got white legs. Let me tell you, I got some white. Legs. I wear pants all the time. I don't ever wear shorts. I'm not saying it's wrong to wear shorts. I just don't wear them because I'm embarrassed by my white legs. And I'd pull up my uh, pants right now, but you'd all need sunglasses. Amen? And so, uh, but uh, my poor wife, I, we found a little private stretch of beach in Rhode Island, and I sat out there, and I didn't put any sun protection on. And I sat out there for probably four hours. At one point, I went out in the water and came back out. I had uh, burns, that burn marks a month later that are still there. Let me tell you, that night we got back to the hotel. This was our anniversary night. It wasn't supposed to go this way. I'm laying in bed. I'm, I'm in trauma. I'm shaking. I'm freezing cold. My wife's got every towel she can find in the bathroom over the top of me. She's got blankets that she's pulling out of the little closet there that smelled musty. And she bought an aloe vera plant from the grocery store. She's wiping this on my sunburn. And I'm freezing to death. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I was scorching hot. Oh, I was miserable. For the next week, I walked around the church building without any socks or shoes on. My ankles were swollen. I had blisters all over my leg. I was in great pain. And I think about these people that will be scorched by the sun and will go through this, not just for a short time on their legs, but will have to live this way. God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. You see, uh, those that choose evil and choose against God and, and, and choose to follow Satan uh, and take his mark, boy, the wrath of God is going to be severely poured out on them. Next, we notice the next uh, 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 vile or bold judgment we see here is that the Euphrates, or rather the great darkness, great darkness on the earth. Look at Revelation 16, verse number 10. And the Bible says, there in the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the sea of the beast. 
and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores and repented not of their deeds. You know, one of the uh, uh, things that Satan uses to deceive people is by convincing them that God is not real. But here, the very uh, devil that pushes people to convince folks that God is not real is the very devil that has his people shaking their fist at this God that supposedly isn't real. Notice here it says that this darkness falls on their kingdom. The sun goes from burning them to being totally shut off. And it's dark. You ever been in darkness so dark you could almost reach out and feel it? Where it was so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face? Boy, this darkness is going to plague the kingdom of the beast and where he is located. It's going to be ugly. The sixth vile judgment is the Euphrates River dries up. The Euphrates River dries up. Look at 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. We'll come back and look at uh, uh, the preceding verses in just a minute here, but basically the river's dried up so that the armies of the world have a clear path to get to the field or the, the field of Megiddo where the armies of the world will face off against the king of glory. And so these rivers are dried up. This river is dried up to prepare a natural path for those on that continent to quickly get to that battlefield. And uh, uh, between verse 12 and this last vial, we find where that battle takes place. We'll talk about that uh, uh, more in just a moment here. Next, notice... Great earthquake. Great earthquake. Got my notes out of order here. Give me just a moment. Look at chapter 16 and verse number 17. The Bible says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice uh, out of the temple of, of heaven and from the throne saying, it is done. And there uh, were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since uh, uh, men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the uh, wine of the fierceness of his wrath and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone uh, about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So right at the end of the battle of Armageddon, there's going to be an earthquake that hits this planet like has never hit it before. All of the islands of the earth are going to disappear. That's severe. The city of Jerusalem, I believe, is talking about the great city of Jerusalem, will be divided into three sections. Wherever this Babylon is, is going to fall into the sea and be no more. After that happens, great hail is going to fall out of the earth. And isn't it appropriate, the Bible talks about those that live a rebellious life and a rebellious heart in the Old Testament, that they're to be stoned. God will toss gigantic stones called hail at the earth and will punish those remaining that have turned up their nose and their lifestyle toward God. This earthquake will take place right after Jesus defeats 
the armies of the world and will prepare, uh, will greatly prepare uh, for Jesus to take over and, and that millennial reign of Christ. Number one, we see the voices. Number two, the vials. We've got a lot, long ways to go here. Notice number three, the villains. The villains. Who are the bad guys here? Well, chapters 17, 18, and part of 19 tell us who the villains are in quite um, scary detail. Now, I'm just going to warn you. If you have an affinity for the Catholic Church, the Bible isn't so kind toward the Catholic Church. Tim, is that you? Do you have an affinity for the... No, I'm just picking on you. <laughs> Tim's like, I'm leaving... I can't take this anymore. No, Tim's got uh, places to be here. Um, I can say that because I know it's not true. Um, chapter 17, when we get through looking at this, it's hard to deny that this is talking about Rome. And it's hard to deny that this is talking about the Catholic Church. Let's look at it. Letter A, notice religion's harlot. Religion's harlot. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. It says, And there came out of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and Talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And there's a lot of symbolism here. Uh, but the angel in a moment is going to explain what all of this means. Verse 2. Uh, with whom the kings of earth have committed fornication. Again, this is religious fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth hath uh, been made drunk uh, uh, with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. The word scarlet in the Bible always describes uh, sin. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. By the way, in Revela- or rather Genesis 2, you find a virgin or, or a, pure one, a pure bride in a garden. By the time we get down to the end of the Bible, you find a whorish woman in the wilderness. You see what happens because of the degradation of sin? You take a pure, sinless woman who's found in a garden and you convert her or you change that image into a woman who's a harlot, a whore, standing in a barren wilderness. But look at the verse here, verse 3. And the woman was arrayed. Notice the choices of colors here in purple and scarlet color. Mark that in your Bible if you mark in your Bible. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and Filthiness of her fornication, and upon her forehead was a name written. Look here, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and abomination of the earth. And I saw uh, the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wandered with great admiration. So some things I want you to mark here. And then as we begin to look at 8 through 13 in a moment, you can go back later and reference this, but the color of the uh, of the woman's uh, clothing is purple and scarlet. Uh notice there it says that she is the mother, the mother of harlots. Notice in verse 6, that's found in verse 5. Verse 6 says that the woman is drunken with the blood of the saints. And with the blood of the martyrs. So this is a woman who is, uh, or, or uh, whoever this harlot is, is guilty of having murdered millions of Christians. Now, uh, the word admiration, you found at the end of, find at the end of verse 6, is our modern English word for marvel or stand in awe or to be speechless. Um, John was not admiring this horror. In the sense of, oh, I admire you. He was 
in shock at the appearance. He didn't know what to think of it. Verse 7, the angel tells John not to marvel. And then uh, he will, uh, th- that he will rather explain the symbolism of the harlot riding the beast. And so the angel does that. And so we don't have to guess at what these things mean. The angel plainly tells us what it means. Look at verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Well, who is that? Who is the beast of the sea? We looked at that last week. That's the Antichrist. So this beast that is uh, the harlot is riding on is the Antichrist, out of the bottomless pit or out of the sea. Notice the description of the beast. Thou sawest was and is not. The Bible says about Jesus that he was and always will be. You love how our Jesus will always be, but this Antichrist, he is now, but he's not always going to be. Uh, look here. It says, uh, oh, uh, 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 the beast that thou sawest, verse uh, 8, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottom and spin a go into perdition, and they shall dwell on the sea, shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they, uh, uh, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. Look here. The seven heads of the harlot are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Someone want to tell me where the city of seven hills is? That's Rome. City of seven hills. So the seven heads have a double meaning. The first meaning is that the seven heads of the harlot represent seven mountains that she sits on. This is Rome, I believe, strongly. This is speaking of Rome. Now, someone want to tell me which religion is home to Rome? Catholicism. Now, can you go back up to verse number four? Notice it says the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. You know what color robes the bishops and cardinals wear? Purple and scarlet. Look there, it says um, in verse number five, the mother of harlots. How many different churches are there that are split offs of the Catholic Church? That practice the same basic doctrine. The Catholic Church is the mother of those churches. She is the mother of harlots. Look at verse 6. It says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. Um, During the Crusades, the Catholics killed more Christians than you could even imagine. Yes, they killed Muslims, but Catholics killed people who believed that Jesus by grace through faith, is the only way to heaven. And they killed them by the thousands. The Catholic Church is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. To me, there's no question that... Oh, and and she has on her forehead Mystery Babylon. This is why I believe Mystery Babylon is Rome. Now, you say, well, won't Babylon be rebuilt? And the answer is, I don't think so. Uh, Jeremiah told us that that city would never be rebuilt. By the way, it hasn't been. Hasn't been. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, in Iraq, you have uh, Baghdad that sits about 50 miles away from where Babylon once was. But that area is desolate. And they, and, uh, they start, Saddam Hussein started to rebuild the city of Babylon. But there was, the Gulf War began and stopped the rebuilding. And it has just stayed stopped. Interesting how the Bible says it would never be rebuilt, and it hasn't, all these thousands of years later. So I don't believe that Babylon is 
a rebuilt Babylon. I believe that this mystery Babylon is uh, future Rome and that Rome will fall into the sea as part of that uh, great earthquake. Okay, so the seven mountains or the seven heads have a double meaning. The first meaning is uh, seven mountains. What is the second meaning? Look at verse 10. And there are seven kings. So these heads also represent seven kings. Look, notice here, five are fallen and one is and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he maketh, uh, he must continue a short space. So remember uh, when John was living, John the Revelator, when was he alive? Well, he was alive during the Roman Empire. So that kingdom that is uh, was speaking, uh, the angel here speaking to John, he was speaking of the Roman Empire that once was. So what are the five kingdoms that once were? Well, they are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. All five of those fell. Rome was the one that currently was at the writing of the book of Revelation. And the one that was yet to come, I believe, uh, is described further down by talking about the ten horns, which if you study Daniel and Revelation together, you learn that these ten horns of this harlot uh, are the ten kings that will rule the world during the first half of the tribulation. Now, everybody I have read, and I have read a lot of uh, sources on this, Everybody I have read believes that this uh, this uh, 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 government, this seventh government, is the European Union or some form of a European Union. I got to tell you, I did some reading this week about the European Union, and there's some creepy stuff about the European Union. And I won't get into all that this morning. I don't have time, but. If it isn't the European Union, there will be ten kings that rule uh, uh, on the planet during the tribulation, and uh, that is the seventh kingdom. Now look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. So, uh, verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. When do they give their power and strength unto the beast? Well, at the abomination of desolation, at the halfway point of the tribulation, when the beast is made the king or ruler of the world. These ten kings uh, is the seventh kingdom, and the Antichrist comes out of the seventh kingdom to become the eighth kingdom there at that abomination of desolation at the halfway point. Notice that the beast, the political power, will use the harlot of the Catholic Church to get what he wants to be. Many believe, and I am one of them, that the Catholic Church will combine their forces with Islam and be the one world religion or the great uh, whore of Revelation 17 during the first half of the tribulation, I believe, and by the way, there is a, out there something called Chrislam, Chrislam, the combining of Christianity, Christianity, not our version, and Islam. This is when uh, Catholicism and Islam are made one, and there are plans to build a Chrislam building in Berlin, Germany, as we speak. They're planning on building this and merging these uh, religions together. Uh, again, I've given you a lot of information here, but if you study out soteriology or the end times of the Islamic faith, their imam that is to come lines up perfectly, lays over perfectly our Antichrist, 
in our Bible. So I believe that uh, uh, Catholicism, which is compromising and becoming more and more uh, vanilla in its approach and more and more political in its approach, will become one with Islam. And during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the beast will ride this religion to gain his political power. But let me just tell you this about Satan. He's really, really, really good at using something to get everything he wants out of it and then destroying it. Now, the religion of the world will cease to be whatever it will be in Rome. And it will become the worshiping of the Antichrist at the halfway point. Now, what is going to happen with this religion once the Antichrist becomes worshipped? Well, look at verse 16 of Revelation 17. And the ten horns uh, which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. As I read that, I can't help but think of Jezebel and how she was destroyed. But they're going to destroy uh, this religion and she will be no more as the new religion will become the worshiping of the Antichrist. So letter A, we see uh, we see the, the, the mystery. Uh, let me go back here in my notes. We see uh, with, uh, where to go? Letter A. What did I, there it is on the screen. Religion's harlot. Notice letter B, political and economic headquarters. Political and economic headquarters. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to skip chapter 18. Uh, but John calls uh, the city, that is the political and economic headquarters during the tribulation, as Babylon. There's all kinds of different opinions about Babylon. I told you I believe it to be Rome. Others believe it to be Jerusalem. Others believe that Babylon will indeed be rebuilt. I don't know how they... Uh, 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 get that to line up with uh, the prophecy in Jeremiah uh, where it, uh, Jeremiah said the city would never be rebuilt, but some believe that. Others believe that Babylon is nothing more than just the overall economic and political structure. However, uh, uh, 18 refers to it as a specific city. So I believe it to be Rome, but there are others with uh, other opinions, and I respect those as well. Either way, the tribulation saints are warned to avoid this city. And God ultimately will destroy it. Letter C, notice militaristic hatred. Militaristic hatred. Now, this immediately follows the drying up of the Euphrates. So you go back to the seven uh, vile judgments. Uh, This will follow that sixth judgment. This will be right at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Turn back to Revelation 16. Look at me at verse number 13. Okay, Verse 12, we find the drying up of the Euphrates River. Verse number 13, we see how the armies of the world will be gathered together. It says there, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon or of Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So one from each, uh, one evil spirit from each of these will uh, move around the earth. Look at 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, and uh, of the whole uh, world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So these uh, evil spirits will go around the earth once the Euphrates River has been dried up and they will perform miracles and they will conjole and convince these militaries of the world to come to the battlefield of Megiddo and fight that great last war against God. Turn over to Revelation 19 and verse number 19. This fits in with 16, 13 through 15. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him 
that sat on the horse and against his army. So these these uh, armies of the world will gather one last time. One question I'm asked from time to time is, where is the United States of America? Uh, what role do they play in the end times? And the simple answer is, they don't. They don't. And so as we are a citizen of heaven before we're a citizen of the U.S., and by the way, I love my country. I show up for Veterans Day Sunday. We're going to do it up big. I love our country. I pray regularly for our country. And so I, I don't want to come across as unpatriotic in saying this, but as we watch our country begin to uh, uh, degrade and go downward as far as our placement in the world, please understand that that must happen before this and Revelation can take place. And so you just don't find the U.S. as a major player or even mentioned in Scripture. Some people have uh, uh, pulled that out of Scripture. I don't personally see it. If you have that opinion again, I will respect that. Number four, and lastly, notice the victor. The victor. Now, the title of the sermon this morning is this. Are you on the winning side? Because the forces of evil are going to get ramped up to fight Jesus. I'm going to tell you. It's not going to be a long battle. Now, I want you to imagine all the nuclear power that these countries hold. I want you to imagine all the force, the, the manpower they possess. They'll be standing there, lined up, ready to go, ready to fight King Jesus. This battle is going to end pretty quick. This is pretty cool here. Let's look at this. Letter A, notice his worship. So, again, there's this great anticipation in heaven that begins right after the three-and-a-half-year mark. The, the Hebrew martyrs, the 144,000, they're singing a song no one else can sing while there's an orchestra playing for them. You have the, the tribulation saints that have been martyred. They're standing by a sea of glass in heaven and they're singing and angels are coming in and out of the temple of heaven and they're proclaiming things with their voices both in the ear of God and on earth and uh, uh, judgments being poured out and, and there is this, uh, uh, this uh, 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 emotional excitement that builds and builds and builds as King Jesus gets ready to come to earth and win the battle against evil once and for all. And here we find Revelation 19, that building of excitement in letter A. We notice his worship. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 19. It says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people uh, in, uh, uh, in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation uh, and um, uh, salvation... And glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteousness are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, uh, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of the servants at her hand. And again, they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And you can see Jesus as he's almost getting ready to go to battle, and everyone is beginning to shout and get excited and rejoice, because King Jesus is getting ready to come to earth and win this great war against the forces of evil. Let her be notice his wedding. So prior to Jesus leaving for battle, he's going to go get married. You say, well, who's he going to marry? He's going to marry the church. You see, at the beginning of the, of the, we're raptured at the beginning of all this. 
In that seven years, we are washed with the water of the word through the, 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 the process of, of, of the uh, uh, great white throne, or rather of the, uh, of the judgment seat. And our works are tried and the, the bad is burned up like chaff and the good are turned into, into, into crowns. And we're given robes and we're prepared as a bride to be prepared for a wedding. And right before Jesus goes down to war, he's going to marry his bride, the church saints. Look at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. That's the judgment uh, seat. And, and uh, her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. After the judgment, we're given permission to put on that white gown. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Uh, the righteousness of Christ laid on our behalf. And our sin thrown over the shoulder of our God. Verse 9. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So we have a wedding and then we have a feast. And then at that point, we're all going to mount up on white horses and like a great army, we're going to follow our general into war. Let her see. Notice his wardrobe, his wardrobe. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him or uh, sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. Picture this in your mind's eye. His eyes were as a flame of fire uh, and uh, on his head were many crowns. That word crowns is the Greek word diadem, which means victor and had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, his own blood that he uses to wash away our sins. And his name is called the word of God, the living word of God and his in the armies which were in heaven. That's us followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that which uh, uh, that with it he should smite the nations and he should rule them uh, with a rod of iron and he treadeth the wine presses of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords oh what an outfit he'll have on you getting excited this morning let us D, letter D, let us notice his war. I gotta tell you, the war isn't quite as exciting as, uh, as the build up to it, because it's gonna be over quick. Look at verse 17. <laughs> I love the taunting here. How many of you like to uh, talk smack when it comes to sports? There's some taunting, some smack talking that goes on right here by the angels. Look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls, the fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the flesh of uh, 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 and, and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. They're gathering together the birds. You know, when I'm driving down the road and I see roadkill and I see a, a, a vulture that's there picking at it. I think about that day where the birds are going to be picking at the kings of the earth as they're slaughtered there at this great war against God. You remember when David taunted Goliath? He said, I am going to feed you to the birds. Actually, Goliath taunted him first. He gave it right back to him. This is David's son, Jesus, having the devil taunted and is evil. It's going to be great. Look down at verse 19. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. 
to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that uh, had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain uh, uh, with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, uh, 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 which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So the Antichrist, uh, so, so what happens is that the Antichrist and the false prophet are bound up and they're thrown into everlasting hellfire, never, ever to plague the earth or deceive the nations again. They're gone. This religion and political system that have merged into one under the Antichrist will be thrown out for good. You say, well, what about the devil? Well, look at chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon. I sure hope I get to see this. That old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. You say, well, pastor, what happens at the end of a thousand years? You've got to come back next week to find out. <laughs> You know, we look at all of our militaristic advances, and it's impressive. And you realize that in just a short moment, the Christ who created the earth will destroy the armies of the earth. You say, well, what are we going to do during this battle? We're going to watch. We're going to watch. We're there basically to be the peanut gallery while Jesus does his thing. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. You see that question at the top of the screen? Are you on the winning side? You see, one day God is going to judge the earth. Please listen to me. Please hear me on this. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, then you're going to experience the wrath of God. Now, you may die prior to the tribulation, but God has hell waiting for those that reject his son. You say, Pastor, I don't understand how a loving God could send anyone to hell. And I would say this, God is a judge first. God hates the sin inside of each of us. He hates it so much that he punishes those that die in their sin by sending them to hell. But the other side of the coin with God is that He's also love. And while He is 100% wrath toward sin, He's 100% love toward you. You say, well, how does God love me? How can God love me? Well, God loved you so much that He sent Jesus to the earth and allowed Him to live for 33 years. And at the end of His life, He was taken and He was nailed up on a cross. And while Jesus hung on the cross, God looked ahead in time and He saw your life and He saw all the sin of your life and He gathered it together and He placed it on Jesus. And Jesus became your sin and your sin murdered the Savior on the cross so that He could buy you the gift of everlasting life. And all he says is, well, you just simply believe and receive. You see, if I allowed my son to die for you and you turned your nose up at me and the great sacrifice I had just made, I think you'd make me pretty upset too. And today you have a choice. Are you going to accept the great uh, offering, the great sacrifice that was made on your behalf? 
You can accept the gift of eternal life that's free. It only requires your hand of faith to extend and receive it, or are you going to reject it? My friend, if you want to be on the winning side, it doesn't matter how you've lived. It just matters who you believe. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that He rose from the dead for you? Do you believe that it's yours? Christian, let me ask you a question. Are you behaving like you're on the winning side? Or are you acting like you're on the devil's team? See, one of the worst things a soldier can do is fire on his own troops. Second worst thing a soldier can do is sit down and not participate in the battle at all. While his brothers of war fight without him. Oh, don't do that, Christian. You're on the winning team. Then fight the good fight of faith. The last question I have for you this morning is, are you actually trusting God to avenge, avenge, avenge the evil that's done to you? Are you patiently waiting like the saints of Revelation? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. I have preached much, much longer than normal. I had a lot of material to get through. Thank you for being patient with me. But today I want to ask you this question. How many of you would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I know that I am on the winning side because I have accepted the free gift of salvation. Pastor, here's my hand in testimony of that. Would you just hold it up? I have believed in Jesus to save me. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today that in the privacy of the moment with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed except my own, that before uh, uh, you and God and would you be willing to admit that you're not sure where you'd go? Should you die today? My friend, you don't want to live under the wrath of God. It's ugly and passionate. But the love of God is, to the other extreme, wonderful and euphoric. And he wants to give to you the gift of everlasting life. The only thing He requires is that you humble your heart. You believe in Him and Him alone to get you there. Who here today say, Pastor Lejeune, if I die today, I'm just not quite sure I'd go to heaven. I'm just not quite sure. If that's you and you're here today, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to call your name out. I just want to pray for you. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up and write back down, Pastor Lejeune, please pray for me. Is there one? I'm just not sure. How many here today say, Pastor Lejeune, I'm on the winning side, but I'm not always living like I'm on the winning side. You know, sin nailed your Savior to the cross. Are you going to flirt with it? Sin butchered your Savior. Will you love it? How many here today say, Pastor, there's some things in my life I need to clean up so I can start living like I'm on the winning side. Here's my hand, Pastor. Please pray for me. There's some things that got to go. I'm not doing my part. How many here today say, Pastor, you talked about the saints that patiently wait for Jesus to avenge. And I need to allow God to avenge the wrong that's been done to me and quit trying to avenge my own hurts. Pastor, pray that God will help me to trust him and his timing. That's you here today. Please slip your hand up and just say, Pastor, pray for me. I've got to let God do what God does and not try to take his place. Lord, I do ask today that you'd help us. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Lord, while it is peculiar in some ways, it tells a powerful story. 
Lord, I pray that there's one here today that's holding out, that hasn't believed, that today they'll do that. Would you work in our hearts, Lord? Would you help us to love others? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to behave like good soldiers of the faith? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. As the piano plays...